The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. There generally comes a time in, in every person's life, uh, most of you guys have graduated high school, maybe some of you guys haven't, but there generally comes a time in every person's life uh, where you have to face whether you're going to go to a high school reunion or not. You guys ever had to face that decision? Um, some of you guys are homeschoolers, and maybe you don't have that, but some of you guys weren't, and you, you, know, you actually have a, a high school reunion that you have to go to. Uh, uh, I went to, uh, I graduated the same year as Megan from Conway High in 1995, and, uh, and I only went there for the last semester of my senior year, so even though it was my high school reunion, it was really more like hers, and we went, I think, was it our 10-year reunion, I think, or 15-year reunion? I think it was our 10-year reunion, and it was, had been just long enough, that this, it's a fascinating thing, it, it had been just long enough that uh, nobody was really familiar with each, you know, each other anymore, but yet um, it wasn't so long, like, like it was like super weird. So we got in there, and we're kind of like, it's like really kind of weird, people are arriving, and you're kind of eyeing each other, and you're like, all right, this is going to be an awkward evening. And, uh, and this is the interesting thing, and everybody's kind of milling around and trying to talk, and like, what have you been up to, kind of thing. And then the next thing I knew, like, as some people started to, to arrive, I, I turned around and I saw everybody in this table across this, like, conference room in a hotel, and all the old lunchroom tables had gotten back together. It's like, it had been long enough that nobody knew how we were to interact with each other. Like, well, we'll just go back to the way that we were before. I learned some things that night. I saw some, like, there's weird interactions, you're trying to figure out how to talk with people that you haven't known for a long time, and, you know, you would really have no reason to be in the same room anymore except for a high school reunion. I also learned the power of the electric slide to pull women of any age to the dance floor when the DJ is desperate to try to get people on there. As soon as we put the electric slide on, like all of a sudden it's like, it's like, like bees to honey. It's like all of a sudden the dance floor filled up with women and it, then the party started to get going. Um, but, but, but here's the, the weird thing about high school reunion. that uh, no matter, At some point you get to an age where either you're considering going or as you go, you're uncomfortable about the, the idea. Like maybe you want to see people. Maybe you want to kind of like, you know, kind of re- get it reacquainted with people. But enough time has passed that you're kind of uncomfortable about that awkward exchange when somebody asks you about your life and you ask them about your life. Have you ever had that moment? Maybe you've gotten a little bit older. Uh, where, where somebody who knew you, I had an interaction yesterday with a, a good friend of mine, a very good friend of mine. We haven't been around each other for years. And we had that kind of weird exchange where I asked him, hey, what does your life look like these days? And he gave me a general answer. But I could kind of feel like he's, he's kind of feeling and thinking, if I really describe to you what my life is like, my life is going to sound very boring and disappointing. And I'm probably thinking the same thing back to him. At some point, we all get to a stage in life where we're uncomfortable about the people asking us about what our life is about. Because even if you're content in your life and you feel pretty generally pretty happy, maybe you feel a bit ashamed about sharing it. Because what is going on is at that moment, you and I are afraid that our life doesn't really measure up. We're, we're wondering if our life is actually truly valuable, if it truly accounts for anything. At some point, we have to ask the question. If we, maybe go, we may go through day-to-day life and not really think about it, but at some point, we have to ask the question, what kind of life am I building? What kind of life am I building? What kind of life have I built? 
That's really what those awkward exchanges at those high school reunions are really forces to think about, is not just what am I doing, but really what is my life building? When it's all said and done, what kind of life will I have built? When it's all said and done, what is the sum of my time and energy that I put into life? Does any of this actually count? And you guys ever think these thoughts? I'll be honest with you. I think these thoughts all the time. When I'm lying down in bed, when I'm getting home from work, when I'm sitting down at my desk at my office and I'm wondering, does this even really count to anything? What am I building with my life? What is all this going to equal? Is any of it of any lasting value? And that's what Peter asks us and lays out before us in this passage. He's really asking this question, what kind of life are you building? Because we are all building some kind of life. And he offers in this question, he offers hope, a great hope. And he also offers warning. He offers a hope and he offers a warning. Here's what Peter is telling us. He tells us that what we build our life upon determines what kind of life we build. What kind of life we build upon is really the determining factor of what kind of life you build. And there's going to be hope and a warning in there. From this passage, we're going to see three elements of building a life that is of lasting value. First of all, we're going to see that a life of value is built on Jesus. Secondly, we're going to see a life of value is cemented, cemented to others. And we're going to see a life of value is set apart for holy service. A life of value is built on Jesus. A life of value is cemented to others. And a life of value is set apart for holy service. First of all, a life of lasting value is built on Jesus. Uh, let's look, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 4 through 8. And uh, uh, Madeline already read, this for, read them for us. We're going to run through that again. Uh, Peter has been writing to a church in uh, the churches uh, in Asia Minor. And he, there's a, these are churches that are suffering. And he's been telling them a lot of really awesome things. Just before this, he's been telling them, as Jonathan covered last week, that they should put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. If they have indeed tasted the Lord is good. And then in verse four, he says, as you come to him, he's talking about Jesus, a living stone, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men. So Jesus was rejected by men. Think about all through his life as he was disbelieved by all the people of actual power and repute. And then finally he was turned over by his own people, the Jews who were supposed to be God's chosen people. And they rejected him and cried out for him to be crucified, rejected by men. But in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. Verse five, you yourselves like living stone, so he's comparing us to Christ here, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, he's quoting Old Testament passages here. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, will not be put to shame. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, Peter, again, he's writing to a group of churches that are suffering. And they're suffering mostly because, simply because they have faith and trust in Jesus Christ and not in the pagan gods of the Roman Empire. And so that, that put them at odds with the rest of society, just like oftentimes now, believing in Christ and following him oftentimes mostly puts us at odds with the rest of our society as well. And as these people are suffering simply because of their faith and trust in Christ, they had to be wondering. Now, they were suffering like for real. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their businesses. They're being ostracized from their family, ostracized from society. Some of them are actually being uh, perhaps uh, locked up. We know, we don't know if in this case, we know that early believers, some were even put to death. They were, uh, they were uh, punished physically because, because of their faith in Christ. If that's going on with you, if you're suffering simply really because of your faith and trust in Christ, don't you at some point have to ask the question, uh, God, what is up with all of this? What's the point in this? Maybe you've asked that question about your life at some point. Maybe you haven't been suffering because of your faith like them, but you're suffering in life. And you ask God, hey, what's the point of all this? This, these physical ailments that I have, this loss of the job that I thought was going to be secure, this break in my marriage, this break in my family, these children that uh, I dedicated to the Lord, but today they don't seem to be following after him. God, what's the point in all of this? Does God, and then that has to make you kind of even ask the question, man, I, I'm a Christian and you know, I believe in God, but man, in my secret moments, I wonder Hey, does God even really exist? Because if he does, would he allow this to be happening? Would he allow me to be going through the suffering that I'm going through? Is all, this, is all of this really true? Or am I being deceived and we're all just being duped by each other? And, and, and if it is true, then God, what are you doing? And if this is true, God, do you really value me? Because I see you helping other people around me, but I don't see you doing that to me. So maybe there's like a, a second class and a first class citizen thing here with you. And you really like these other people, but you don't like me. Because if you liked me as much as you like them, you would give me what you give to them. Or you wouldn't let be taken away from me what is being taken away from me. Do you really value me? Are is my life or of any of our lives of really any true value? And here's what Peter does is he's talking to these people who are suffering, these people who are hurting, these people who are in many, for most reasons, unjustly suffering. They didn't do anything in order to have this, the actions that are being done to them happen. And while how he addresses it, he addresses their value as people by talking about the value of Jesus. He addresses their value by talking about the value of Jesus. He quotes several Old Testament passages here, beginning in verse six, where there's this comparison about the Messiah to come. There's these prophecies about the Messiah to come, and there's a comparison about the Messiah, the Savior that the Jews are waiting for. There's this comparison of the Messiah to a stone or a cornerstone of a building. In fact, by, by this time, everybody would have known that these prophecies are talking about 
the Messiah to come. In fact, Jesus compared him to even use these verses in talking about himself. And then here's the thing about a cornerstone that you and I, that you and I miss. And, and my, my dad uh, is a builder. Uh, he, that, that building gene did not get passed. Is it a gene? Did not get passed on to me. My dad can build things. My mom is very crafty and handy and makes things with her hands. And I've never been able to get my hands to do those things. I lack the creative ability or maybe willpower, Mark, to actually do projects. Any project that requires a screwdriver or a drill, like I consider myself to have like, done something really major. If sawdust falls on the ground, man, I'm like, hey, I really did something. It was just, po- it was just like putting mini blinds up, but man, I did a project. And that's about the extent of what I do. But I know a little bit about building from hearing things from my dad. And here's what I do know, that, uh, that they did not have in the ancient times the things that we have now to build a building in order to, to make sure it's on level ground and make sure the building is built square and safe. So, you know, so the, 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 walling, the walls are all at 90 degree angles and they're straight and that you're, as you build these walls are actually going to meet in the right place and everything's going to come together nice and tightly. They, don't, they didn't have that. So what they would do is in a, any building that was of any true value, they would build it of stone. And what they would do is they would invest the, a great amount of the investment in building this building into quarrying what was a cornerstone. So what they would do is according to the size of the building, they would go and find a large stone of strong material. And when they would find that, that, that stone of strong material, think about all the, the energy that would go into whenever you didn't have like trucks and uh, cranes and things in order to move a large stone from where you find it in the ground to a place where you can't work, to the place where you're going to build a building. They would take this stone of strong value, a large stone, and then they would square it. They would make sure that every single side and plane that it was that is a perfect square or a rectangle with perfect 90 degree angles on every single side. And they would spend oftentimes as much time finding and honing the cornerstone as they would actually building the rest of the building. Because here's why you would take this cornerstone once you had it nice and clean and straight. And you would move it to the site of the building and you would lay it down. And then from this cornerstone, you would build the building out. And that's why it had to be at perfect 90 degree angles so that as you build out from the cornerstone, your, all your, built, your, your walls are going to be square. And then when you pull them back together, they're going to meet at the other side. You're going to have a square building. The, the cornerstone was by far the most valuable stone in the building. In fact, depending on the, the size of the building, the, the value of the cornerstone itself, the amount of energy it took to find it, hone it, ship it to the place that where you're going to lay it down would sometimes be as valuable as the rest of the stones together to build the building. The cornerstone was by far the most important part of the building. And so when he compares the Messiah or Jesus to the cornerstone, what he's saying is Jesus is incredibly valuable and precious in this thing that God is building. And he's the one that he, he's building the kingdom of God off of. The Old Testament declares him to be chosen and precious in the sight of God. So when he says that, they would, be, they would be thinking about how chosen and precious an actual cornerstone in a, in a building would be. The, the cornerstones of, the, of the, uh, the temple buildings were enormous. 
That maybe the first thing that these people would think about, these, 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 they, were, they were humongous things that required an incredible amount of energy and effort to get there. And that's how they, they made sure these, uh, the temple and the other buildings around it were solid, were strong, and were straight. And he says, Jesus is the cornerstone who's chosen and precious by God. But yet he says of man, he was rejected. So he says, in in God's eyes, Jesus is the cornerstone that he is building his kingdom on earth on. But to mankind, he is a a stone to stumble over or a stone of offense. And isn't that true of Jesus' life? It's true of his death and it's true of him now. If anyone, to, to the average person who's not a believer, this whole thing about Jesus is foolishness and offensive. It's foolishness to believe that, like, God would send a, a baby to a girl who was a virgin and she'd be born. He'd be, she'd give birth to him in this like cave barn and he would grow up a perfect life and he would do these miracles and then he would die. And these Christians, they believe that on the third day that he actually rose again and now he's seated at the right hand of the father and he's coming back on the back of a white horse. Like that's a bunch of foolishness to the average mind who's not a believer. And it's a stone of stumbling for them and their foolishness and the foolishness that it seems to represent. And Jesus is also offensive to the person who's not a believer because Jesus claim is that he alone is God represented to us and that no one comes to the father except by him and no one can find eternal life. That is to be have their sins forgiven, a sins that against a holy God forgiven and to live eternally in bliss with God, except by believing in, trusting in and relying upon him alone. He claims God claims alone to be king of kings and to be Lord of lords. And that is offensive to all of us who are not believers, because you know why? Because I want to be king and I want to be Lord of my own life. And I don't want anybody else to come and tell me and command to me how I need to live my life, how I need to think about my life, how I need to think and react to the other people around me and how I need to think and react about my relationship with him. In God's eyes, in God's eyes, Jesus, the son of God is chosen and precious God, before he was a man and the ways that you can think about that in eternity past, Jesus Christ, the son of God, lived in perfect unity and enjoyment with the father. All the father's good. He shared with Jesus Christ and he took great pleasure in him. And the son took great pleasure in the father. And that son, the second person that God had became man and yet was rejected and is rejected continually by man. Chosen precious in the sight of God, but in the sight of man rejected a stone to stumble over or a rock or stone of offense. Now, depending on how you view the stone, the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, that, that sort of results in two different responses. If you, if you view Jesus as a, a stone to stumble over and a rock of offense, then you're going to reject him, the cornerstone. And you're going to try to build your life on something else, anything else. You may build your life on your intelligence. 
You may build your life on your family history. You may build your life on your good looks. You might build your life on your charm. You might build your life on your education. You might build your life on wealth. You might build your life on any number of things, but you will find something to build your life on some cornerstone that determines the direction of your life. But the problem is every single cornerstone other than Christ, none of them are clean and level. Every single one results in a house that never quite fits together. And so you build your life trying to build this life from a faulty cornerstone and you can never make it work. You can never make the joints close together. You can never quite make it look like you want it to look. You might successfully build a facade that looks good from the outside or the people in front of you. But anybody who gets close enough or anybody that gets to the side, they see the messiness there. They see that it doesn't quite come together. Or if you view Jesus as the, the cornerstone, the one who is chosen and precious to God, then you come to him. See, look at verse four. You come to him. And that's this picture of, of acceptance and humbling yourself to Jesus. It's a submission to him. If you come to Jesus as the cornerstone, you're saying, God, you get to determine where the angles go, and I don't get to make that call. You are the cornerstone. I am simply a rock that's being put into this wall. And my purpose is not to determine anything around me. It is simply to make sure that I stay in alignment with the cornerstone. That's the life of the believer. It's a life of coming to Christ in acceptance of who he is as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and coming in complete and utter submission to him as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You say, I am going to make the job of my life not to make my name great, not to put a lot of money in my bank account, though that may happen. I'm not putting my job in my life is not to have a perfect family or have a perfect husband or wife or job or career. The number one goal, the number one job of my life is to make sure that I remain in alignment with the cornerstone. And that alone is my job, my greatest role, my greatest job in my life. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Here's the truth. You're either building your life on some inferior stone or you're building your life on the chosen and precious cornerstone of Jesus Christ. But you are building your life into something. And what I'm talking about is not, doesn't have anything to do with a resume. It doesn't have anything to do with looking impressive to the people around you. It doesn't have anything to do with fame or fortune or making an impact in the people, lives of the people around you. That the Lord will do that with those that are his. I'm talking about simply a life of a person who is in alignment with Christ and sees that as their number one role in life. Look at how Peter says the father thinks about Jesus. He says the son in verse four is chosen and precious. How you view and how you think about Jesus is the most, the number one determining factor in your life, whether you know it or not. And the reason is because that Jesus Christ is God's chosen and precious son. 
Jesus Christ was sent to show us the nature and character of the Father. He was sent to call God's children to himself and to provide a way for us to come back to him by paying the penalty that you and I owed to the Father because of our sinful, rebellious acts. And how you view that chosen and precious stone is the number one determining factor in your life. You line up with him or you stumble over him. You may not think about him ever. You may consider him foolish. You may consider him offensive. But in the end of the day, the end of your time, your view and your response to the chosen and precious cornerstone of God, Jesus Christ, is the number one determining factor in your life. As you come to him, a living stone. We're going to be celebrating this in about a month. That Jesus Christ, the chosen and precious cornerstone for the believer, though he may be offensive to the people around us, though he following him may be foolish to the people around him. We know that Jesus Christ is the living stone. He came, he lived a perfect life, then he died a substitutionary death, and then believers, he rose again. And you know what that means? That means no matter what the people around us may think about him, no matter what the people around us may think about us for following him, we know that we will not be put to shame because Jesus Christ is the living stone who died but was now living and is resurrected at the right hand of the Father. So nothing can be ultimately taken from us. Even those Peter is writing to who are suffering simply because they're believers, Peter is saying you have nothing to lose because Jesus Christ is the living stone. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And if you are in alignment with him, that you're based upon a stone that will not be moved, that has overcome and will overcome sin and death and the grave. And so you will never be put to shame. That is why the honor is for those who believe. Not because of anything that we do, but because of what he has done and because he is the living stone. So you can see why the stakes are so high from our view and response to Jesus. Either your life is built on the cornerstone of Jesus or you stumble over him to your own peril. The scripture tells us you either fall upon the rock or the rock falls upon you. That's That's the truth. But if we come to Jesus, this passage is telling us we will be built into him. Uh, This one, it says that your yourselves in verse five are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That that phrase spiritual house is talking about the idea of a temple of God or the the temple where the Holy Spirit of God dwell in the middle of his people in Jerusalem before Christ. So what he's telling us is that he is calling us together as believers as we come to Christ. We are joined to that cornerstone and we are being built into a temple or a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So this tells us several things. First of all, it says that tells us that Christians are joined to Jesus when they trust in him. This is good news because Jesus contains All the power of eternity. Can you imagine that? 
Jesus, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him dwells all the power of eternity. Death could not hold him. He is risen at the right hand of the Father at this very moment. He is ruling and reigning, and he will rule and reign in eternity forever. And for the believer, if you are joined to the cornerstone, it tells you that you are joined to something that can never be shaken and can never be moved. You and I, I don't know about you, but I often feel weak. There are certain days where I feel okay, but there, I'm, I'm, there's lots of days, as I, particularly as I get older, man, where I just feel weak. I am not as strong as I once thought I was. I'm not as strong as you guys know I am not. I am a weak person. I can hardly hold my stuff together most days. But I know that if I'm joined to Christ, he's holding me and not me holding myself together. Notice the wording there. It doesn't say that you are building yourselves. It says that you are being built into a spiritual house. You have been joined to Christ by God and he is building you into something great. That's the second point. Every Christian's life is being built into something great. You have, if you are a believer, you have a great purpose. The building is in the Father's hands, not in your hands. Your life may not look very impressive to yourself or anybody around you. But if you maintain alignment to the cornerstone, then the, this scripture tells us the Father is building your life into something great. You're, he's building your life into his great purpose in creation. That is to show his glory and his grace to the entire universe through his church. That's what he's doing. And you, as a believer, are a part of that. In Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, living what may seem like an inconsequential life. That maybe you yourselves can't even figure out what your life is amounting to, much less the people around you. But in Christ, you're being built by the Father into something amazing and something great for his glory. This tells us that Jesus' nature and his character and his life are communicated to believers. Listen to that, that phrasing when he, he calls Jesus Christ the living stone, but then he calls us in verse 5 living stones, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable God, to God through Jesus Christ. You are being Jesus, you have been filled with and covered with his, Jesus's nature and his character and his life. It is communicated to you as you are being connected to the cornerstone. He is building you to be a part of a temple, of a, of a, of a dwelling place for his presence among people that showcases the nature and character and life that is found in God. It also tells us that Christians can expect the same kind of suffering that the Lord experienced. If they, if they rejected him, then they will oftentimes reject us as well. In fact, Jesus told us that. But it tells us that a Christian can live with confidence. Verse 6, at the end of verse 6, whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, will not be put to shame. The honor is for you who believe. 
It doesn't matter what your life looks like to you. It doesn't matter what your life looks like to others. If you are built upon the cornerstone of Christ, you will not be put to shame. There's great honor for you. A life of lasting value is built upon Jesus very quickly. A life of lasting value is cemented to others. Look at this. It says in verse five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. You know what that means? That means that, this, that the Christian life is not a life of you being alone with Jesus. It means that coming to Jesus means coming into a relationship with his other saints. It means that you are joined to Jesus with other believers. And it also means that you are joined to Jesus through other believers. There's this picture in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, a couple places where Lucy, who's the youngest of the, of the uh, kings and queens of Narnia who, who uh, follow Aslan, who's the picture of Jesus in the books. And Lucy is the one who has the most tender heart. She's the one who loves and follows Aslan most easily. But there's a couple of times where Aslan carries Susan, who's more of a doubter, who ends up actually not following Aslan later on in the books. I hate to ruin it for you, but uh, Susan and Lucy get on Aslan's back and Aslan tells Lucy, hold on to Susan. And that's oftentimes what it's like for us as believers. We are directly connected to Christ. There's nobody that stands between us and him. And yet sometimes we're connected to Christ only through other believers. Like we're still connected to him, but in, in terms of feeling, in terms of we, we may feel like he's far away from us. And yet it's our connection with other believers that actually helps keep us tethered and tied to him. We're being built into a spiritual house by the father. That means he is the one, he's the one joining us to the people that are around us. Uh, I don't know about you, but I I've, have, not now with this church, but in other places where I've been, I fantasized about what it would be like to be a believer at a different church where we had better leaders or better congregants or people who loved him more or more exuberant or more giving or who more this or more that. Maybe you think that sometimes. If this congregation was larger, if it was smaller, if it had people who were more like this or less like this. But you know what this is telling us? It's telling us that Jesus has joined us to him. And he's the one, it's the father who has joined us to other believers in, within the cornerstone. Maybe we think things would be different if we were around other people. But yet it's God who is building us together. And we, we find a greater connection to the cornerstone when we see how and why and the beauty of why God placed us around these other people, maybe even people that we don't really get along with very easily or we even relate to very easily, but we understand he's placed us, us here with these people. If I can stay connected to them, I can stay connected to the cornerstone. And lastly, and very quickly, a life of lasting value is set apart for holy service. Look at this, verse five. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, that's the picture of the temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Here's the picture. 
in the city of Jerusalem, which was in the middle of God's uh, people's land, Israel, there was the temple. And inside the temple dwelt God's presence in the middle of his people. And so as the people gathered around that temple, they knew that God's presence was there. And what they saw in the temple showed them a clearer picture of who God was and what he was doing. And they had a great confidence in who they were as a people because they knew that God's presence dwelt there in the temple. Here's what God has called his church to be. He's called his church to be a group of people joined together to the cornerstone who in the middle of our society showcase the nature and character and presence of God to the people outside of us. That means that God has determined and God has declared and God has established that the society around us would see his nature and character. They would see his beauty. They would see his truth. They would know that he is real by looking at us and seeing the way that we relate to each other, the way that we relate to God, and the way that we then relate to the people who are outside of the people of God. God is building us together so that the way that we live our lives is dedicated as the priests were dedicated to worshiping the Lord and show and being a go between between God and his and the people who are around the temple. That we would be a go between between God and the people outside that we would showcase God to the people around us. That's what God has called the church to be. And that's not based, by the way, upon a building. I pray the Lord puts us in this building, but if he does not put us in this building, downtown Myrtle Beach, we, that is not a make or break moment for us because it's not a building that showcases the nature and character of God. It is God's people that are the living temple of God that are being built together to offer spiritual sacrifices that declare the beauty that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. And what are those spiritual sacrifices? We'll talk, we're going to talk about it more next week, but it's really just living a life that is dedicated to the worship of God in the mundane things that we do and the ways that we, that we are friends and the ways that we're neighbors and the ways that we're couples, the ways that we're married couples, the ways that we're fathers and mothers and children and, and coworkers and the ways that we're fellow church members with each other, the way that we live our lives, the mundane daily things become holy moments of holy service to the Lord that showcases the beauty that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. So I ask you this question. What kind of life are you living? What kind of life are you building? You may or may not feel like you're building a life of any lasting value. But if you're building your life based upon the cornerstone, then you can have the confidence that you're being built into a holy habitation for God here on earth that declares his beauty and his goodness and that in the end, you will not be put to shame because you're building on what is lasting and living and will never die. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. 
Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.